Hi again. Please stand if you are able for the reading from God's holy word. <clears throat> Today's scripture reading is from 1 Samuel 18, 1 through 16. Please read with me the verses in bold. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day, would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David, because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him, and gave it to David, and his armor, and even his sword, and his bow, and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistines, the women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul, with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands, and what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre, as he did day by day. Saul had his spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed from him his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. And David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This whole mask and microphone thing is a new vocational challenge. Good morning. My name is Brad. I'm one of the pastors here at Grace, and I'm grateful that you could be with us. Um, man, this week uh, has been, I think, one of the most disrupted by COVID weeks for me and maybe for church in, in some time. And uh, I know that that's true uh, for some of you uh, because I got handfuls of texts and calls this week uh, and even this morning saying, we're not going to be there, we're in, we're in protocol, so on and so forth. So many greetings uh, to many friends uh, who we know are joining us on the live stream and we're grateful for the ability to do that. So grateful that uh, we still... Uh, have the ability to meet together, and thank you for coming. Um, we're in the middle of a series um, from the book of First Samuel called After God's Own Heart. That's a description of David. 
And um, if you're unfamiliar, uh, this is the David from the famous story, David and Goliath. And today uh, is maybe a lesser known part of uh, the story of David. This is the aftermath of David's defeat of that Philistine giant, how people acted and responded to what, uh, had, what had happened. And uh, I, was, I was thinking about it, um, thinking about the passage this week, and I, and I thought, have you ever known somebody who liked to talk about themselves in the third person? There's a, there's a character on an old, on a, on old uh, Seinfeld episodes. His name is Jimmy. And Jimmy likes to talk to, uh, about himself in the third person. He'll say things like, oh, Elaine, you are just Jimmy's type. Uh, or maybe your, uh, maybe your family has gone through a season of uh, Elmo's world. Today, Elmo's going to the zoo. Today, Elmo's learning to sing. Elmo loves you. Um, apparently, there's a word for this, for talking about yourself in the third person. It's called uh, uh, iliism. And uh, iliism is the excessive use of the third person pronoun to refer to oneself. It's sometimes used in literature as a stylistic device, uh, but my personal opinion is that when it's used excessively in conversation, it could come off as narcissistic and self-centered, drawing attention to myself as if I'm not the one talking about myself. On the other hand, uh, when a narrative intentionally chooses to talk about the main character in the third person, to avoid quoting them or telling us what the, what's going on inside their mind, and actually takes that opportunity to illuminate the speech and the thought and the actions of the other characters in the story, it can actually serve to elevate or uh, illustrate for us the protagonist, the main character. It's emphasizing how they are seen and perceived by others. And that's what happens in these 16 verses that we read this, uh, this morning. Previously, there was lots about what David said and what David thought and what David did, but this is the story um, of what others did in response to David. That's the, the writer's technique in First. Samuel 18, in the aftermath of David's defeat of Goliath and victory over the Philistines, chapter 18 explicitly highlights two different responses to David. Jonathan, the crown prince, Saul's son, uh, and Saul, the king. Uh, Jonathan uh, is traced, and we trace Jonathan's words and, and actions. We trace Saul's words and actions. And the passage even gives us a glimpse into God's interaction with David. And so we get a, a sketch of something, what it look, uh, something of what it looks like to navigate those relationships as a person after God's own heart. David is... We are told a, a person after God's own heart and we watch him navigate um, his friendship with Jonathan, the fear and jealousy that Saul shows him and the favor uh, that God bestows on him. And so uh, this morning I want to look at uh, relationships others had with David in three ways, friendship, fear, and favor. 
And as we go, I hope that this passage will help us see how understanding God's heart, how understanding the gospel, how operating in relationships with that as our motivation, understanding the gospel debunks uh, three of our culture's most significant myths about relationships. So uh, friendship, fear, and favor to debunk three myths. Everything is sexual, everything is power, everything is for profit. Let me see if we can do it. Friendship. Maybe you've seen this movie. It's, one of, it's an old favorite of mine, the 1986 classic Stand By Me. Uh, the, the movie concludes with these words, quote, I never had any friends later on in life like the ones I had when I was 12. Does anyone? In her book, Deep Secrets, Boys, Friendships, and the Crisis of Connection, researcher Naomi uh, Way says, in their early teens, boys that she interviewed talked about their friendships with other boys in surprisingly intimate terms. Someone they could let their guard down with, unburden their deepest secrets, and find a level of mutual commitment with. But by the time they arrived into their late teens, many of them no, were no longer willing to talk about their friendships in, in such shockingly intimate terms. As they grow, she says, boys find no cultural space in our sexualized society for the friendships they once enjoyed. Essayist Carrie English describes this, uh, a similar impact of the sexualization of our friendships on young women in her essay, A, Bridesma a Bridesmaid's Lament in which she describes the experience of attending a friend's wedding as being, quote, platonically dumped. She says, being platonically dumped wouldn't be so bad if people would acknowledge that you have a right to be platonically heartbroken. But it's just not part of our vocabulary. However much our society may pay lip service to friendship, the fact remains that the only love that it considers important, important enough uh, to merit a huge public celebration is romantic love. What is Jonathan's um, response to David's victory and, uh, and his relationship with David? He loves him. He says he, he loves what David has done and he, and he loves David. In verse uh, 1 it says, The soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David and David loved him as his own soul. They became soulmates. Now, sadly, we don't have an ability in our culture, uh, in our sexualized culture, thank you, Sigmund Freud, uh, to read about two people being soulmates without importing our own expectations that, they must, that that must imply romantic sexual love. More than one writer has tried to pull this verse out of context to try to make a case that David and Jonathan had a homosexual relationship. But, this is, but that not only ignores the Hebrew language here uh, that is used, the words here are not words for erotic or sexual love, but for deep, genuine intimacy and selfless commitment. But it also ignores the point of the passage, which is God's heart for us is to have intimate relationships. That our relationships would be 
intimate and committed. This is uh, uh, it, to understand that God knows us and that we can be truly known by him and uh, his heart for our relationships is to model for us and to pursue that kind of intimacy in each of the people cr- uh, that we know and love who are created in God's image. And uh, read correctly, we see very clearly in this passage that intimacy does not equate in a one-to-one equation with sexuality. That is our cultural importation. The word First Samuel uses here for Jonathan's love for David is the same kind of wording that the book of Genesis uses to describe a father, Jacob's love for his son, Benjamin, when it says, uh, the father's love is bound up with the life of the boy. Look how Jonathan binds his life with David's. In verse 3 and 4, it says, Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own, as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David, and his armor, and his sword, and his bow, and his belt. Uh, First, when it talks about a covenant, this is the language that the scriptures would use to describe the the pact or a treaty between two kings or two powerful people. I swear on my own life that I will keep this promise to you. I will will not break this relationship with you. And uh, it's a covenant that's initiated by Jonathan, not David. He He is not the pursuer. And here's what Jonathan does. He gives David his robe. And this would have been a robe given to him by his father, the king. And he gives him his sword and his bow and his belt as well. So Jonathan is taking off the uniform of the crown prince, the heir of the kingdom, and giving it to his friend David because he loves him. Because he acknowledges that he sees that this is David's and not his, which is quintessentially the gospel. Jesus is the crown prince of heaven and he transfers what is rightly his, eternal life and relationship with God to us, his followers, whom he calls friends. Why? Because he loves us. Because he desires that we would have the same intimate relationship with God that he does, that Jesus does. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might know the righteousness of God. He gave up what was his so that we could have it. This is the essence of the gospel. It's the essence of God's own heart, modeled for us in a spiritual but not sexual friendship. I think that says at least three things to us who have uh, struggled not, as it were, to buy into a sexualized culture that sexualizes every relationship and sexualizes even our identities. Uh, Three things. First, we haven't figured out real intimacy. Real friendship, real love that is after God's own heart is not uh, primarily self-interested, primarily interested in one's own rights or one's own pleasure or one's own fulfillment. not primarily interested in claiming what's rightfully mine in my relationships. Real intimacy, real gospel love is about giving up your rights for another to serve them. Not because you have to or have been mandated to, but because of love. 
because this is someone that you love and want to serve. So we haven't figured out real intimacy. Also, we're missing out. Missing out on deep, intimate friendships that God intends us to have. Relationships that can model the gospel and uh, they, can, they can model the gospel because they're, uh, they are opportunities without the pressure of sexualization to see one give up themselves for another. And yet, we're missing out because we have no cultural space in our sexualized society for the friendships that we once enjoyed as children. Finally, we're leaving people out by idolizing um, erotic relationships or romantic relationships, by sexualizing intimacy exclusively. We elevate romantic love to a place that the Bible does not elevate it to. And, uh, and, and, and we imply or suggest that if you're single or celibate, then you're missing out. But the scripture is clear that singleness does not mean missing out on the heart of the gospel. Single people throughout the scriptural story are critical to the life of God's people and critical to the witness of the church and critical to exemplifying the gospel to the world. And our church and the church is brimming with them, brimming with single people, people who find themselves in a life stage that's before marriage or never married or after marriage and finding themselves uh, feeling left out because of a culture that inappropriately elevates romantic love. It's a good thing, but it's not the ultimate thing. So Jonathan's friendship with David helps us to realize that the gospel debunks this myth that everything is sexual, every relationship is sexual. Let's look at Saul. Um, let's look at Saul's fear of David and debunk a myth that everything is power. In an essay called A Biblical Critique of Secular Justice, theologian Tim Keller describes an increasingly accepted cultural understanding that, quote, reality is at the bottom nothing but power. This is the idea that we can understand society and relationships and culture all just by measuring power. Who has it and who doesn't and how that makes them behave to get it or to keep it. It's a worldview that divides people into categories of powerful and oppressed, into categories of visible and invisible, into valued and forgotten. And I think there are some really useful, strong critique of some of the problems of our society in this worldview. But it's also a worldview that seems to create and endorse uh, vendetta and retribution as a virtue for those who feel left out. And paranoia and protection as the posture for those who have enjoyed influence. So in short, when everything is power, then anger and fear are what motivates everything. That's what we see in Paul's reaction to David and his victory over Goliath. Saul was angry and afraid. Those are the primary responses. In verse 6 it says, As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, that's Goliath, the women came out of the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul. 
with tambourines and songs of joy and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. Whoa. You know, I grew up in the, like, in the, the first generation, the infancy of MTV. And uh, political protest songs were super in vogue. I remember in, uh, staying up late with older kids to watch Live Aid uh, or Farm Aid or USA for Africa. Uh, maybe all three, they were televised concerts um, on MTV where musicians gathered to sing songs and speak truth to power. They would, there, was some, there was always a cause that they were trying to rile people up about. And uh, as I studied this passage, I'm not sure that these ladies coming out from uh, Israel's villages intended their song to be a political song. Not sure that they intended to poke Saul the way that it did. It's, I guess it was simply tradition to sing uh, when a victorious army returned, that you go out and meet him with song. And uh, to celebrate the victorious king by name and to give credit to heroes from the battle. And apparently in, is, uh, in Israel's poetry and song, it's also tradition that you magnify with every uh, ongoing verse. So most important people first and magnify the numbers as you go on to celebrate. So it makes sense that Saul comes first, he's the king, and David comes second, um, and that they multiply the numbers that they sing. But even knowing convention, Paul couldn't, um, Saul couldn't take it that way. He couldn't hear those words. He wouldn't take it that way. All he saw was numbers and power. And Saul, verse 8 tells us, was very angry. And the saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they've ascribed thousands. What more can he have but the kingdom? This is a power grab. That's all, that's all Saul sees. I'm going down. I got to protect myself. In fact, Saul can't receive anything from David without suspicion because for Saul, everything's about power. While the passage doesn't tell us what David thinks, as we mentioned before, it tells us what Saul thinks. It goes on to be very clear that Saul is envious of David's influence, jealous of his military success, suspicious of his motives and everything that he does. And in fact, it becomes clear by the end of uh, 1 Samuel 19, the next two chapters, that almost everything Saul did publicly to promote um, and approve of David, he actually did... Um, he was actually clandestinely designing those plans to eliminate David. We, 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 we learned that he was sent out to battle with the elite soldiers to the most dangerous parts of the war, that uh, he demanded from David uh, the death of hundreds of Philistines as a dowry price for his daughter's hand in marriage. Both of them were not so uh, disguised attempts at sending David out to get killed by the Philistines so that the Philistines would be to blame. When everything is about power, you can't trust anyone. And operating motivated by the pursuit of power or the protection of power only has the power to divide and separate people, never to unify. The impression that we get uh, partly from the silence in the passage about David's thoughts and his perspective, his motivation, 
uh, the perspective that you get is almost that David was unaware of the threat that he was to Saul. We're told that David loved God, that he loves Israel, that he loved Jonathan, and that he honored Saul, who was God's anointed king over Israel. Even after his own anointing, even after the prophet Samuel had said, David, you're going to be king. David, it would seem, didn't see a contradiction between believing that God had called him to do great things and being a servant and submitting to appropriate authority that God had put in his life. Power, David recognized during this episode in his life, was God's to give, not his to grab. And he certainly didn't perceive that it was something Paul needed to protect himself from him about. What kind of freedom might be ours if we didn't believe that we had to protect our position? If we truly believed that we were secure in God's power, how much more useful would we be to those who need help and who need our voices to speak for them if we didn't care about what would happen to us and to our position if we gave some of our power away? This is the kind of freedom that Jesus displayed when he spoke to power. When Jesus was in the presence of those who had the power, like Pontius Pilate, the power to take his life. Uh, Jesus was free to speak the truth, um, free to give it and give away his power because he trusted God was the giver of real power. And that whatever Pilate would take from him, God could return to him. Ultimately, the story is his life from the grave. Uh, As we look at David's uh, David's relationship with Saul, we see uh, that the gospel uh, debunks this idea that everything is power. Finally, favor. Um, this myth that everything we do, uh, every relationship we have is for, is an exchange, is for profit. There's one more relationship that we shouldn't miss in the aftermath of David's victory over Goliath, and, and it's how the passage tells us that God, or Yahweh, relates to David. I'd sum it up with one word, favor. In chapter 18, there are four different references to David's success in whatever he set out to do. No explanation, no credit to skill or preparation, just success. Three different times that we're told explicitly that God was with David, that somehow um, David had God's presence present with him, and six different occurrences Six different ways that we are told that David is an object of love. He's loved. He's loved by Jonathan. He's loved by Saul's daughter. He's loved by Israel and Judah. He's loved by Saul's servants. He's loved by God. Verse 14 says, David had success in all of his undertaking for the Lord was with him. This is not the story of how lovable David was in God's eyes because he was successful. It's not the story of the results um, that David earned by his service to God. This is the story of the results of God's favor in David's life. 
This is not the story of David receiving things that he was entitled to because of what he had done or where he was born. He wasn't even the firstborn son of a shepherd, let alone firstborn son of a king to receive that inheritance. This is not the story of what David did to earn from God his successes. This is the story of God's favor bestowed on him. We find it almost inescapable to believe that everything we do is an exchange. That everything, all of our relationships are a give and a take. I I scratch your back and you scratch mine. Everything is for profit. Every relationship is an exchange of goods or services or affections. You deserve this because of what you have done. But that's not the story of David's success. David's is a story of God's favor, and so is the gospel. When, uh, when we come here to worship, we don't come here to show our credentials as deserving of God's love and his favor. Uh, we come to celebrate that God has shown us grace, and he has given us life. Jesus we're told, came to sacrifice himself for us and for our sin as a sign of God's favor, God's initiation, God's loving choice, and David's life story as one of being chosen by God and receiving many, many times in spite of himself and in spite of his own sin, God's affection and his favor. And that's the story uh, that we recount at Christmas time uh, when, when, we, when we read the story of the angels singing on the night that Christ was born, the coming of God in the flesh. They say, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace to men on whom his favor rests. God's favor, his welcome, his delight, his acceptance, his smile, his affection, is embodied in Jesus coming to the world and to us. Us, rebellious, self-absorbed, over-sexualized, power-driven, profit-driven rebels. And that's the freeing paradox of the gospel, of living more and more after God's own heart, realizing I'm not earning favor, I'm celebrating and enjoying his love. The more we uh, live more and more to God's own heart, the more we come alive to the reality of the favor that God shows us in Jesus, alive to the riches of the gospel, and the less we obsess about our own lives, our own position, our own power, our own identity, our own ability to define ourselves the more uh, we, 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 we lay ourselves down and live after God's own heart, the freer we are to be who God has made us to be. That's the good news of the gospel.